Welcome to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. I'm Patty Vest. And I'm Mark Wood. In these extraordinary times, we're coming to you from our various homes as we all shelter in place. This season on SageCast, we're talking to Pomona faculty and alumni about the personal, professional, and intellectual journeys that have brought them to where they are today. Today, we're talking with visiting professor of anthropology, Arlen Chase, who specializes in Mesoamerican archaeology. Welcome, Arlen. It's, it's great to have you with us here in it's cyberspace. A, and it's nice to be here and see some other faces, even if they're on a screen. <laughs> <laughs> so how, how have you been adjusting to uh, life in these very challenging times? Well, it's actually been quite strange because I left uh, to go to the field in the middle of January. And by the time I came back, um, uh, the pandemic was on us. Amona was closed. And so immediately upon getting back, I was locked down in the house and we're still sort of locked down in the house, even though we're moving houses. But <laughs> I'm, I'm one of the few individuals who was able to actually carry out a full field season uh, in Belize. Yeah. And so we left Belize on March 22nd and they literally closed the airport on March 23rd. It's reopened on October 1st, but they have, <laughs> they're on a watch list because of the COVID-19. Yeah. And so it's it's uh, it's a pretty crazy world. Wow. It is indeed. Well, we'll go in deep into more deep into your into your work, um, Arlen. But uh, first, can you tell us a little bit about your early years? What what was what what was it that sparked your interest in archaeology? What actually sparked my interest in archaeology was a school teacher. Um, I believe it was in the third grade, and my dad was in the military. I was actually born in, in Germany, and then we spent five years in Paris, France. He was at the headquarters called Shape, which eventually moved to Belgium. And so I started my schooling actually at Orly Airport, which is now known as Charles de Gaulle Airport. And my third grade teacher, her husband was a paleontologist. Mm -hmm. And we were, had a little section on fossils, and I told her how interested I thought fossils were and one day she brought me a bag of dirt. And that bag of dirt kept me busy for the next six months because it was just full of little teeth and little vertebrae and all kinds of wonderful things. And that was what really got me interested in, in, in pursuing the past and, and eventually archeology. span And then when I returned to the States in fourth grade by fifth grade, I was doing, they had us doing reports in front of the class and I decided I would focus on prehistoric humans. And so every week I would give a lecture, quote unquote lecture or talk, on a different fossil human to my classmates. And from there I went into uh, had a scholarship to a private boys school. My dad had never gone to college. My mother hadn't gone to college. My dad hadn't actually finished high school. He earned a GED after World War II. Um, um, but at, because of that, he valued education because they, neither one of them had it. And so he, I got a scholarship to a private boys' school on the Monterey Peninsula. And of course, being from a, um, essentially a family with no resources, I was being pushed to go into uh, medicine or law or something that was seen as being lucrative. But then in my senior year in high school, I took a course in the fall semester from um, an individual who turns out had worked in the Maya area and did rubbings of, of all of these stila. And she was quite well known 
art historian. And she had her classes in her living room and served us coffee in the evenings. And um, I was just fascinated with Mesoamerica and the Maya. And then in the spring semester, she took us all to the field for a three week field trip as part of senior year. And it was at that point that I was, I was completely hooked because I, we went down there and we actually found sites and we found all these wonderful carved monuments um, that no one had ever seen. And I realized that this was sort of an underappreciated and underworked area. That's not true anymore. But at the time that we were down there, it was. And so at that time, I was being recruited by a lot of different universities and I selected um, the University of Pennsylvania. And because of the, they had a big Maya archeology span program and they were carrying out research that summer at a site called Tayasal in Guatemala, which was known as the latest Maya capital. And I just automatically assumed that uh, I'd go to the University of Pennsylvania and be able to go on this research dig and it didn't quite work out that way. The, uh, they did a season in 1971, they excavated 47 structures, um, but then um, the project sort of fell apart. And eventually I ended up doing that, writing that all up for my PhD dissertation. But I had a very warped view of what um, university was all about. Um, I went there to do Maya archeology span and it turns out that the University of Pennsylvania didn't take undergraduates to the field. That was a, uh. that was a oh no. <laughs> And so um, I, no matter what, I had $300 and I got on a plane and I spent the whole summer of 1972 wandering around Guatemala and hooked up with an archaeological project in the Paten um, that I had no, known was there from um, the previous visit with Merle Green Robertson. And I did survey all summer around the, uh, a lake in, in the Guatemalan Paten. Um, it was pretty audacious because uh, I was bus uh, going on buses back and forth between, at that time, California and, and Guatemala, which was quite an experience. Um, but that was what led me into doing Maya archaeology. And then um, because of my experience as an undergraduate, um, we, uh, we have always taken undergraduate students with us to the field. I honestly believe that undergraduate students need that kind of an experience in terms of visiting the world and seeing the world. And they're much more malleable than students that have made it to graduate school who are pretty much set in their ways as mm -hmm. to what it is they think they want to do and what they will not do. So I went to University of Pennsylvania. I did my undergraduate degree there. And when it came time to apply to graduate schools, I went to my advisor and, he, and I said, where should I go? And he says, well, you, you'll stay here. And I didn't get good advice because one of the things you should always do in terms of graduate school is see who's going to give you money. And that, <laughs> never. Good life advice in general. Yes, but I'm, sure you, I'm sure you tell your students that, right? I do, I do indeed. Um, but you know, it never even occurred to me that I should even be considering that because I had been paying essentially for my undergraduate education. My father um, really had issues um, with the university and the paperwork. And so although I went there on full scholarship uh, for my first year, he refused to fill out any FAFSA forms. And so I ended up with oh, loans, no. loans for the uh, old undergraduate experience 
there. And, but one of the things that pushed me to do was something called submatriculation, which meant that my senior year was my first year in graduate school. And it turns out I'm the only person that ever survived that transition because <laughs> in, as a senior in, as a senior undergraduate, you're, everybody treats you wonderfully. And as a first year graduate, they don't. They're, you, <laughs> you're supposed to be able to prove yourself. And so it was a real kind a uh, real hard time making that um, that transition. Plus, at the time I was doing graduate school, they had a, they usually tried to flunk out over fifty percent of the class after the first year, and so you were literally fighting and scratching to be able to stay in graduate school. Um, and that is not the way it is anymore. Uh, universities look at it quite differently. They want to make sure that if they're investing in you, that their investment pays off long term. And so they, they spend a lot more time vetting you on the way in and making sure that you are going to finish. Um, but I, I stayed at the University of Pennsylvania. I ended up writing up the Tyasol uh, material and that was probably the best decision I ever made because I had a ready-made data set, a huge data set of 47 different excavations. I had uh, 35 burials, I had caches, I had an entire ceramic sequence. Um, and my dissertation ran almost 1,300 pages uh, to give you a sense of how much time there was um, involved in doing this. And so I got my PhD from University of Pennsylvania finally in 1983. Now I should note that also at the University of Pennsylvania, I met my future wife. I literally helped her move in on the first day that she arrived on campus. Mm. Um, and then uh, eventually she also got her PhD at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, but they told us that uh, you shouldn't uh, be in the same field. And so we at that time were trying to look at going to Nicaragua for her and she was going to do bioarchaeology, which is a specialty she still has. And that is the study of human skeletons. And she does mortuary archeology, span which is looking at burials and interpreting burials. But we went to Nicaragua in, in a certain time and we did a preliminary field season for a month down there looking around, trying to find a uh, historic cemetery that she was going to excavate uh, in order to do research. So we got back from Nicaragua um, and we found out there was going to be an issue in Nicaragua, which pretty much threw all of our planning up in the air. And we also got together and said, why can't we both do my archeology? span at the same time, there was a visit to the University Museum from the Archaeological Commissioner in Belize. And the director did not want to meet with this individual. And they, because they knew we did Mesoamerican archaeology, they said, you meet with the individual. And so, um, and we said, well, what's going on here? Well, it turns out the University Museum had a project in Belize in the 1950s. Uh, which is that's the same site we're working at, which is Car Coal. The reason they went down there was because their museum needed carved stone monuments. And so they went down there, and it, since it was uh, under British control, they flipped a coin after in 1950, 51, and 53, and ended up with 50% of all of the archaeological remains. So they have something like 9 to 11 monuments. Uh, from Car Cole at the University Museum, and their goal was to add to their collections. Mm. So the person from Belize was coming to see the University Museum to tell them, 
we want our monuments back. And they didn't want to meet with him. So he met with us. He met with us and he stayed, uh, she stayed with us, I should say. And um, um, they, she invited us to come down to Belize. And so that was sort of the answer to our um, uh, problem was to go to Belize. And so initially we weren't sure about this and we signed on with a project in 1978 and we went down to Belize and it was actually pretty interesting. Uh, we did our own excavation at a site called Nokmul. Uh, that's a whole other story, which I won't go into. And then in 1979, we actually got our own permit to work at both Nokmul and Santa Rita Corzal, which turned into my wife's uh, PhD work. And so we ran a project there for two years, and she wrote that up as her, as her dissertation, looking at the post-classic period. Uh, at uh, Santa Rita Corzal in Nohul. Then we got National Science Foundation money and went back there in 1984 and 1985. And then we started at Carcola in 1985 and we have been there ever, ever since. Um, and so that's sort of a brief history. But every single field season that we have ever done, um, starting as far back as 1977 when I was doing dissertation work in Guatemala, has involved undergraduate students. Is that one of the things that brought you to Pomona? Because I know you previously worked at a couple of large universities. Um, is, was, I, was that one of the at, reasons? That... Yes, it, it, the students at Pomona are phenomenal. They actually do the work, they do the reading, and they talk to you about things. Yes, I've been, uh, we started our, um, we, our employment in Central Florida, and we were there for 32 years. So we, we um, as we finished grad school, I became an acting, an acting um, assistant dean in, the, in advising at the University of Pennsylvania. And that was the way I finally put myself through graduate school, was I was doing 39 hours a week in the advising office. And you might say, well, why 39 hours a week? That was so they didn't have to pay me benefits. So they of would course. Hi hired me at an <laughs> hourly rate. Um, because if I'd done 40, they would have had to pay benefits. And so for 39 hours a week, I worked every week 39 hours. And um, I was also doing uh, double shift duty. I was the night librarian at the University Museum Library. Um, that was good work because I could actually get work done there. And what did you do in your spare time? Well, I was trying to write that dissertation. Okay? <laughs> My wife beat me by a year. Uh, in terms of dissertation. She got hers in 82 and I got mine in 83. Um, and so while I was acting as uh, assistant dean and advising, she got an, uh, she became a lecturer at Princeton University. So we moved over to Princeton and I was commuting to Philadelphia each day and with a set of other individuals. And then at uh, Princeton, um, that was very interesting as well. It was, uh, we uh, brought all of the Santa Rita stuff with us, but she was the only archeologist on staff and um, they expected her to just stay there. Um, and so she was being set up to be an assistant professor, but there was no job for me. So and I didn't really want to stay in administration at that point. I wanted to try my hand in um, uh, teaching and, and doing academics. And so at the same time, we got wind that there was an individual out there who wanted to fund an archeological project. And that may sound funny, but it, they, they do exist. 
And I ended up getting, <laughs> getting a phone number and I phoned the person and the person literally flew up the next day to meet us in Princeton. And he stayed with us for three days talking things out about how we would run a project, what would we do, etc. And two weeks later, we were down in Belize with him talking to the archaeological commissioner in Belize. And while we were talking uh, in Belize, the archaeological commissioner says, we have two potential sites. Uh, one of them is in the north. We think it might be important, but we don't know. And we have this other site, which everybody says is important. We think it's important, but again, we don't know. And I said, well, what are the distinctions? Because I need to be able to take students. Says, well, then you don't want to go to the one in the north because it's under marijuana fields and we have to fight some of the farmers off all the time when we <laughs> visit the sites. I said, no, I don't want to go there. He said, all right, then let's, let's take a look at the second site. So the next day he gets us in a Land Rover and he literally drives the Land Rover over trees. For, we, had, we got us all the way into downtown Park Hall um, on, in this Land Rover on an old logging road that was completely overgrown. And then on the way out, we got stuck in a bog and we took three hours to wench the car out. Oh, and no. um, it was, it, but every, for the next 15 years at Caracol, that's how getting in and out of Caracol was, okay? It was, you never knew whether you're going to make it or whether you're going to be stuck on the road. And so, but he, he signed us up to be doing Caracol for 10 years. And the individual did in fact fund the first two years of our project at a very um, good amount of money. And at the same time, he said, I'll fund you better if you came over to Florida. And we said, well, you know, there's no jobs in Florida. He said, well, we'll see what we can do about that. And so <laughs> all, all of a sudden, there are two jobs appear at, for visiting assistant profs at the University of Central Florida. And this is in 1984. I, and realistically, we were so naive and so badly prepared for the job market. We had no idea what visiting meant or what any of this stuff meant. But we took the two jobs and, and moved from Princeton. Princeton could not believe that Diane was leaving them um, because, you know, they were Princeton. Yeah. But we had two jobs and we started at a very low salary, but it was two jobs together. And we were with that institution for 32 years. We saw it grow from 17,000 students to 65,000 students. Mm -hmm. And um, Diane, I became an associate dean in the College of Science and the director for the School, School of Communication. And my wife was um, acting provost uh, twice at that institution. And then after that, we moved uh, to the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, where she was um, uh, executive um, Vice President and Provost for three and a half years, and I was in the Anthropology Department. And then when she moved to Claremont, I came to Pomona, and she is now working uh, at Claremont Graduate University. Okay, yeah. Glad to have you both. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Well, we're glad to be here. This is actually, Claremont is a wonderful place to live. Um, it's okay. much better than Nevada, the climate's better. Um, we didn't mind Florida, although uh, the humidity was, was great, but Belize has humidity just like Florida. Right. So. Um, you started talking a little bit about Caracol and, and uh, the, the site in Belize. Can you tell us more about some of the research you've done there, um, the findings you've had? Can you uh, sure. unpack that a little? 
for us? Sure. Um, Caracol is one of the largest known Maya sites uh, in the entire area. And the research that we have done at Caracol has helped to change all Mayanists' view of the ancient Maya in multiple ways. One of the first things that we did, and one of the first things an archaeologist does, is they go out and they map sites. So we started mapping Caracol almost as soon as we got there. We did two preliminary seasons in 1983 and 1984, so we could start putting ground proposals in. And then in, we went, we had our first official season in 85, and we started mapping. And we just kept mapping and mapping, and all the way through 2003, we were still mapping. And by then, we had covered 23 square kilometers in terms of doing a map, carrying a transit around on your shoulders, cutting breaches every 50 meters in the jungle so that you had lines of sight. And then we started, we said, well, we're missing so much. We don't have any of these terraces. So we, start, we got an NSF grant to try to map terraces in one part of the site. And that turned into a nightmare because there were so many of them. We were successful in mapping about two square kilometers of terraces over, over uh, three seasons um, uh, doing that. And all of our colleagues didn't believe that the Maya practiced that kind of intensive agriculture when we were doing this in the 1990s. They didn't believe that a site could be as large as Caracol was. And we kept telling them, this is a huge site. Mm -hmm. And these terraces just go for miles. And they said, well, show us. And at, at, well, you couldn't show them because they say, here's a square kilometer. And to me, a square kilometer is quite a bit of area to have mapped. And they'd say, well, what's over here? You didn't map there, so there's nothing there. And it's like, no, it just keeps doing that. So the other thing that we started realizing is that the site was so dense in terms of settlement that they had to be using this causeway system as a primary um, uh, distribution uh, transportation system, and that the only place that was available for administration and for exchange and, uh, and for um, to, to do business, daily business were these large plazas that we called termini that occurred at the ends of these causeways. And so we introduced the term market down there in 1998 at a time when all of our colleagues didn't believe that the Maya had markets. Mm -hmm. And now in 2015, there's volumes that have appeared about Maya markets. So it, it, the, the process of working at this site has changed our sense about Maya economics. It's changed our sense about Maya urbanism and how they live. And it's also changed our sense about Maya sustainability and the intensive agriculture that they practiced there and how they were able to produce enough to stay there for a thousand years and then uh, essentially disappear. One of the other problems we've been looking at at Caracol is why did they vanish around 900 uh, a um, AD and the issue and the, what the data is pushing us to see is not uh, the popular uh, view of a clim dramatic climatic shift causing them to abandon the area. Caracol spans two rivers and so there is water on either end and the people who lived along those rivers also left the area mm -hmm. and so what this has been pushing us to see when we look at the archaeological record, what tends to happen over time is the society becomes more dependent on outside manufacturing and goods. Sound familiar? 
um, we be, become more independent on outside manufacturing goods. And so by the late classic period, Carcoal wasn't making anything. They were importing almost all of the goods that those households needed. And that probably continued for anywhere from 60 to 120 years, at which point they had lost the capacity to do the simple manufacturing that they needed for their households. And what happens in terms of the Maya collapse is all your major trade systems become disrupted and your ability to get outside goods fell apart. And I would, I, in, in our own pandemic, I would talk about masks. If you remember the beginning of the pandemic, nobody was wearing masks because you couldn't get masks because we weren't making them. They were being made in China and some countries like Belize were proactive and already had ordered all of these masks and had them all on stockpile, which we didn't do. And, and the same thing happens, I think, to the ancient Maya is they um, cannot get the goods that they need. They're actually moving food around, they're moving um, pottery around, they're moving everything that they need is, is being manufactured in specific locales and then going back and forth. And that whole system falls apart by 900 AD. Why did the system fall apart? Uh, other than just not having the, 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 the skills anymore, I, why did the-, the Because they're, they're the, completely dependent on the outside system in order to, to um, exist. If you can think about America, if something happened in our country where the farmers um, just disappeared, what would we do? <laughs> no, it, it's, it's, yeah. it's essentially something like that. They had the ability to grow their own food but they couldn't get the monos and matates they needed to grind the corn. They, yeah. uh, it, uh, the containers all broke. They don't, they're not making them. Um, yeah. they're, it's uh, the cloth and the clothes. They're not making that either. It's, they're not producing the materials that they had produced uh, in the past. And then that gets aggravated by warring, warring parties that are coming through. Okay, uh, it's yeah. pretty clear that Caracol is burned and sacked. We have dead bodies on the main plaza, the one behind me, uh, when nobody can see that. <laughs> yeah, <we> have, <laughs> he's referring to his Zoom background, which is very interesting. Right. <laughs> we, we have bodies on the plazas. Uh, we have bodies in palaces, a, a kid in palace that just shouldn't be there. And yeah. so these are unburied bodies, which tells you we had a drastic end. Um, DNA analysis on one of the bodies in the plazas says it's a foreigner. Now that's really interesting that you don't know whether it's a foreigner that was living at Caracol or it was a foreigner that was killed at Caracol, you know, from invading. Um, but the fact that you've unburied people says that they didn't come back. They left them there. Um, yeah. So the site is a, has a rapid abandonment about 900. So you've got a breakdown in system, you have warfare, probably marauders that are taking advantage of this. And then eventually you have a dramatic shift in climate. But what most people don't realize is that that shift in climate comes in the late 900s after most of these sites have already been largely abandoned. And what the climatic shift is a huge um, uh, climatic problem that occurs in the late 900s and all the way, almost all the way through the thousands. It's, um, that makes sure that this area is not reoccupied. Mm -hmm. um, it really puts a, a stop to it. And so you have an area that was heavily, heavily occupied that becomes completely devoid of people or largely devoid. You have still some on, along the rivers, 
largely devoid of people for 500 years. And that is not a normal uh, collapse pattern. It, it, it's, and people aren't quite sure why that happens. Because at that point, the forests have regenerated and everything has uh, started to come back. Erlen, can you tell us more about your research team? You, you mentioned that sure. you take uh, students every season. Um, and you mentioned also that you work very closely with your wife. Can you walk us through a little bit about how your team works at the sure. site? The way our team works at the site is um, my wife and I direct the excavations. She, she only comes down now at the beginning and at the end because of her administrative duties. Um, but uh, in the past, the way it was, we were there the entire season. We would bring our undergraduates, because initially uh, University of Central Florida was a completely undergraduate institution, so we only brought undergraduate students, and then we, I eventually integrated some graduate students, but I've always only brought m our own students with us to the field. We have run, most of our projects have anywhere from 25 to 105 people for three months in the middle of the jungle. Um, one of the reasons we do this, and, and I'll tell you how, that, how the, the staff is composed in a second, we do this is because at the end of each year, you need to write up a field report in which you report on everything that you have excavated for that season and present the final drawings to the Belize Institute of Archaeology in order to get a permit. And so if you go, the seasons we ran 105 people, we fell so far behind um, that it was next to impossible. But when we were running 105 people, we were doing stabilization. We were putting the, the, uh, some of the buildings back together so that tourists could visit the site. And that had to do with some of the funding that we were um, mm -hmm. attracting. So what we do is we're, um, we run what I call an old style archeological project. The bulk of our project is are actually Belizeans that we hire to do the heavy lifting and labor. We have to run kitchens. So uh, when we had a lot of people, we ran two kitchens. What we do is we run one kitchen. So we have three to four ladies that actually make cook for us all week long, every meal, um, and, and do the laundry for the students as well, um, which is all hand washed. Uh, we have no electricity, so we use butane uh, for gas stoves. We have butane uh, for freezers. We've now moved to solar energy freezers, which we have, but that doesn't work too well when it gets cloudy and rains. Um, um, but we are literally um, uh, a shanty town in the middle of the uh, jungle. We, uh, we decide our own building code. The camp has been there now for 36 years. Um, so the buildings are, you know, they we get repaired every year, but it's, they're in pretty bad shape. Uh, the Belizeans are working with us to get us a new camp. They're trying to eventually, they're trying to pave the road. They've actually started that now after 36 years. Um, but the, You'll the, actually we, be able to get there. We actually will. <laughs> and the reason they're doing that is they want to be able to truck in the cruise ships. Uh, they uh, want the cruise ships to the be cruise able best, to... Yes. Uh -huh. They want the cruise yeah, ships excursions. to go to Belize City, yes, and they get a day excursion, a long one, but a day excursion. But our, our so we hire, um, essentially, we hire uh, anywhere from 10 to 15 uh, excavators, and then the four cooks, and then the rest of it is students. Uh, we bring students, 
And then we have some people um, that were former students or people that have worked with us who've been with us for years. So uh, we had one individual who was with us for 18 seasons. Uh, we have another one who was, who's been with us now for 12. And um, whenever we go back, she will come back and she helps me by running the lab. And she works with all the students to teach them a lot of the skills that they need. Her normal job is in a, a contract archeology. span She runs a lot of uh, contracts for the company that she works for. So these individuals come down we don't pay anybody on the, on the US side, the Belizeans all get paid. A lot of the employees that I had, some of them have been working for me for 25 years at this point. And so I know them very well and they know me very well. And it's, a, it's like a, a big family and the sort of everybody trusts each other. Um, and um, I'm hoping we can still go back because they're sort of dependent on, on the money that I provide them um, in, in the beginning of, this, of the year um, for most of their income. Most of them don't hold steady jobs. Um, and they actually enjoy uh, digging in the jungle. They enjoy the, the thrill of the find as much as anybody else. Um, and the, the, what we have found at Caracol is absolutely stunning in terms of remains. Even this last season, we found one of the things that we found was a beautiful incised cylinder vase. Um, way, this is three and a half kilometers out from the epicenter in a dinky, tiny little house mound group in a, in a crypt. Um, and it has this, this cylinder that any museum would be so thrilled to be able to put on prominent display because of the, the, the iconographic scenes that are being shown on it. And that's one of the things that we're able to do at Caracol is to show people where this kind of material is actually coming from. Mm -hmm. We've dug upwards of 160 residential groups at this time, plus most of the downtown architecture. And so like all Maya sites, we have a series of elaborate tombs. Um, a lot of those actually show up in different uh, PBS programs and NGS programs. They've been shown. Um, but one of, we made several major finds at Caracol. One of them in 1986 was an altar stone in one of the downtown ball courts, which changed our whole course of, of history for the Maya in that it records a defeat of the Guatemalan site of Tikal, which was seen as being one of the greatest sites of the Maya. Caracol uh, defeats Tikal in warfare in 562 AD. And we knew that the, there were no monuments during, from the period of about uh, 680 to um, 700 at, um, excuse me, from um, uh, 580 to 700 at Tikal. And this explains why is because Caracol is essentially has knocked them out of the political arena. We know that Caracol did the same thing with another Guatemalan site that's 42 kilometers away. Tikal is 76. Um, but that's one of the things that you start to see is give, you can infer reasons for Caracol's rise um, to power, if you want to say that. But even on the earlier history, the more we dug into these buildings, we'd start to get onto the earlier end. One of the things that we found in downtown Caracol was a burial of an individual in the middle of a plaza, which is something the Maya don't do. And this individual is not only buried in the plaza in a very small uh, square hole with rounded corners, but the individual was cremated. And Maya, the Maya 
didn't cremate their dead. And there's, there were actually um, th up to three bodies in there, two children and, and an adult. There were 20 vessels in there that were burnt um, and so badly that some of the edges had melted. And there were all kinds of other artifacts, including a host of green obsidian that had been burnt at so hot a level that some of the uh, spear points had bent. Now to do that to obsidian, you need to be over 1100 degrees uh, Fahrenheit to get obsidian to, to melt like that. So this was a huge fire conflagration. But when we analyzed this, it was pretty clear to us that what we had found was an elite Teotihuacano from central Mexico, 900 kilometers away, who was buried in Teotihuacan style at Caracol around 350 AD. And this raises other issues because our dynasty starts at 330 AD, according to the hieroglyphs. And so are we getting this relationship with central Mexico to start this dynasty at Caracol? Or these are all questions that you can, you know, you stumble onto and then you can make other uh, research designs and test them with the archaeological data. It's just a question of figuring out how to do it. That's fascinating. Uh, now, you, there's also a, a high-tech side to your work. You've yeah. um, used LIDAR. Um, right. the, tell us about that technology and, and what does it allow you to do? Well, li LIDAR is an amazing technology. It is based on lasers and it's, uh, it's lasers that are mounted on airplanes. They are tied into uh, GPS and satellite systems. The computer is tied in. The airplane maintains a certain height, flies above the jungle, and the lasers, uh, it emits all these lasers that shoot down to the earth and bring the data back into the computer. And, it, and what, it, what it does is the lasers are able to penetrate the foliage, at least some of the lasers. And so you get a, an entire profile, not only of the overlay of the trees, but you get an entire, you get also can see the ground. One of the things that we were doing, as I mentioned earlier, was we were mapping. And by 2003, we mapped 23 square kilometers. And I was frankly very tired of mapping and being told, well, what's over here? Um, how do you know there's anything there? Okay. It's like, do you and know how much work I've been many, doing? Too many holes in your map. <laughs> too many holes in my map. Um, it was at actually about 10 kilometers by 10 kilometers at that point. And so the, I was following the causeways and then we were trying to link settlement into the causeways in 500 meter swatches, but we couldn't map all the terraces either. So by 2003, I was looking for some way to stop this mapping and figure out what was actually there. And um, at that point, I hooked up with, uh, we had an interdisciplinary symposium in the summer uh, trying to promote interdisciplinary uh, research among faculty members. And one of the people we met was an individual who was a biologist named John Weishample. And Weishample had used LIDAR to do trees in Costa Rica, early versions of LIDAR to do trees. And he suggested that this might work, but it had never been proven. And there was some testing going on in Europe at the time, but it was really small and it seemed to possibly work. Um, and so he um, had had a background in NASA. He'd been a NASA intern as well. And so we joined forces and we wrote a grant proposal in 2005. And everybody came back and said, nope, not going to work. 
So we kept writing. We kept writing. And on the, we wrote it five times. Mm. Five times. And on the fifth submission, we got funded in December of 2007 for $411,000 from NASA. And we had NASA funding and matching funding from the state of Florida. Um, and we really had no idea whether this was going to work. And mm -hmm. so we, we were working with a group of individuals, physicists out of the University of Florida. We we're going to hire them as our subcontractor that were known as NCOM, or the national, um, uh, they, they were the ones who were flying the airplanes. They're now located in Houston, Texas. But so they couldn't, we wanted them to fly in 2008 since we got the funds in 2007. They couldn't fly in 2008 because they were changing out equipment, which it turns out was probably the best thing could have ever happened to us. <laughs> so we told them that we wanted them to fly only when in the driest of the dry season, when there were more leaves off the tree than anything else, because we really wanted to get through those trees. Yeah. And so they said, all right, we'll do it in 2009. And so we scheduled this for 2009. The Institute of Archaeology got their plane in, got all their equipment in, and they spent four days in late April flying over the site. Um, and so they flew over the site for four days. They gave us a 200 square kilometer area of LIDAR that had uh, essentially 20 points per square meters. That was the density with one meter resolution. Uh, what that meant was we ended up with 10 to 15 centimeters uh, you can, with your, your height is accurate to uh, within 10 to 15 centimeters. So you're getting, but a LIDAR, what LIDAR gives you is a point cloud. It does not give you images, it gives you point clouds. And so those then need to be run through computers and different algorithms in order to see exactly what it is you are seeing. Or while our biologist was interested in the trees, we were interested in the earth. They sent the DEM to us um, in late in summer of two, late summer of 2009, and it just looked like an awful looking thing. And the problem was, is you had to blow this up. You, you just kept zooming in, zooming in and zooming in. And then it became absolutely amazing. I spent almost three months every day just looking through this DEM because you could, from my standpoint, I could see almost everything. And it was just mind blowing because there were all these new causeways. There were just there's something like uh, 160 square kilometers of continuous terracing in this DEM. Um, there were new termini, just groups everywhere. My, um, my son uh, used it for his um, uh, honors thesis in computer science and archeology span at Harvard to look at reservoirs. And it completely overturned all of our views of how people saw the use of reservoirs in Maya society when he wrote his, his undergraduate thesis. Um, but this, the LIDAR just was absolutely amazing. Uh, we, I immediately contacted Archaeology Magazine, which has the widest, it, it's a popular, both professional and popular, but it has a very big audience. Um, I, I convinced them to let us write an initial article for Archaeology Magazine, which was published in 2010, um, and uh, people still look at that. And then in 2011, we published a major article in the Journal of Archaeological um, um, Science because uh, Science Magazine didn't think it worked either um, at the time. And it took till 2018 for a LIDAR article to get into Science Magazine. Um, but all of the wow. other scientists were exceedingly skeptical of this, that it would have applicability for other people. 
at this point in time, everybody <laughs> in the Maya area wants it. Everybody around the oh, world yeah. wants it. Yeah, Dan it's, Abbott, it's, it's yeah. become one of the most popular tools in archaeology now, hasn't Correct. it? Correct. No, and our biologists gave a talk in 2010 in um, India at a remote sensing conference showing some of the initial results. In the audience was Damien Evans, which is how we ended up getting LIDAR at Angkor um, in Southeast Asia. And Damien's published on that. We saw his, that his LIDAR in 2012 when we visited Angkor. Um, and so it, it, everybody wants this. This technology is, is, it is amazing from the archeologists. What I have done is I've compared it to radiocarbon. Radiocarbon was originally proposed in 1948 by Willard Libby, and what it did was give the archaeologist control of time. And what LIDAR does is it gives the archaeologist control of space. Because until we had LIDAR, we had no idea how, what size we were sampling or what it was we were looking at or how things were totally organized in the Maya area because of the dense jungles that cover this, this, this area and how hard it is to map in these jungles. Right. I mean, um, you're always either too close or too far away, right? If you're too right. far away, you can't see through the trees. And if you're too close, you can't see the big uh, kind of sweeping um, uh, visual things that are happening. Correct. Uh, and I had the one, we wanted to call the original article Singing Through the Trees. And um, <laughs> Archaeology Magazine didn't like that title. <laughs> so they did that to us in 96 when we did the Car Cole title, too. So, um, but it, it, LIDAR is, uh, has revolutionized our understanding of the Maya and it's revolutionized our field. And I'm really thrilled that we were able to sort of be the ones to bring it into the field um, through Carl Cole. Um, so in essence, Carl Cole has really helped us um, not only with an understanding of the ancient Maya, but in terms of how we do archeology span uh, as a whole, in terms of science. Um, Arlen, we talked a little bit about this um, earlier, um, but how has the COVID-19 pandemic affected your research? Um, you mentioned that you were able to actually get part of your field work, or, or I think your, your season in, um, but what do you see, how do you yes. see this, it affecting it in the future? 20, in 2020, because we start in a dry season, um, when we went down there was when people started realizing there was even a pandemic. Um, and so we do two months in the field, 10 weeks. And so I was there for 10 weeks. I, we did carry out our full season with 27 individuals. Uh, we had students in the field, including one from Pomona. I wouldn't take students down there while there's this COVID threat is, is going on. Um, the, question is, is when is it going to be over? And I, from what I'm hearing, it won't be over until may, maybe next fall, which means that this 2021 is going to be another year with this, which sees very little in the way of uh, Maya archaeological research. We have our uh, national meeting scheduled for San Francisco in April. And I can tell you right now, no one wants to do those things virtually. Everybody wants to see each other. Everybody wants to talk to each other. Um, and, and the uh, national associations are suffering because of COVID as well. A lot of people are not joining. Uh, they're not paying their dues. Um, just like people not paying rent, not paying for 
other things, which is completely understandable. Um, this is completely upended uh, everything. The country of Belize, especially, is completely dependent on tourism. And they haven't had tourists. So they're open, mm -hmm. they opened on October 1st, at least their airport. It's been closed since March 23rd. And I can tell you right now, there aren't going to be American tourists going down there. Um, and I wouldn't let the Europeans in because they're on an upswing. And the problem is um, their whole economy is, tour is tourism, tourism, tourism. Um, and they, they're having one heck of an issue uh, in terms of, of survivability. They're, they've cut salaries down to 50% for the Department of Archaeology. They're not doing furloughs, they're doing layoffs. Um, yeah. it's, it's just bad. It, it's the whole situation is bad. And I think that it will have a major repercussions as well for the American educational system. Yes, we can deliver all of our stuff online, but it is not the same as face-to-face. -face. It is not the same as being able to talk to people and make sure that they understand what they're doing and, and um, uh, meet with them on a face-to-face -face level. This just isn't the same thing at all. So it really has been affecting our field and it's definitely going to affect our research. Well, on that somber note, I'm afraid we're going to have to wrap this up. Um, we've, we've been talking about Mesoamerican archaeology with Professor Arlen Chase. Thanks, Arlen. This was really, really interesting. Well, thank you for having me on this podcast. Thank you, Arlen. That was great. And to thank all who stuck with us this far, thanks for listening to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. Stay safe and until next time.